We join our hearts in our confession with the author of this song and with the author of Psalm 90, Moses himself, in declaring that you are our dwelling place, that you are great, that you are holy, that you are worthy of praise, that you are exalted, that you are preeminent, that you are above, that you are over creation. You own all things. The extent of the universe is in the palm of your hand by virtue of your omnipotence, your power, your omniscience, your knowledge, which knows no bounds. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no authority that will ever, ever rival yours. And in fact, as the Word proclaims all of history, mankind itself is moving toward an end wherein one day every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, either by repentance or subjection to Jesus Christ and exalt Him as Lord to the glory of the Father, either by the justice and the wrath of God being poured out for unrepented sin or by the gates of heaven flung wide open because of the power of Christ's blood to redeem. We thank You, Lord, that You are magnificent and awesome and majestic and holy. We thank You that in Your name is all, are all things pertaining to life and godliness promised for us who believe through the sufficiency also of Your Holy Word. As we turn to Your Scriptures and as we behold the timeless truths therein contained all the way back thousands of years ago, to its authorship even Moses, Your servant, I pray that our hearts would be, equi- would be quickened with the knowledge that you are the same and your word never changes. The grass withers, the flowers fail, but you and your word will not wither or fail or fade. Your scripture, your truth, your name are always and ever powerful. And they are powerful, we confess, to the changing even of a human heart. And we who testify to the same praise you for our salvation, the regeneration of our souls. And we also confess faith that through the proclamation of your truth, you are yet able to draw the lost unto salvation. And so we pray that you would through the proclamation of your word, even this morning. In all of this, we pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified as the only Savior of mankind. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege it is this morning to open up the Word of God together. Would you turn in your scriptures to Psalm 90? Psalm 90 will be our text today, 17 verses written by Moses. The title of this morning's sermon is Numbering Our Days. Numbering Our Days, which I submit is a central theme to this song and is also an application for us and for the hearers, for the singers of any age. We must learn with God's help, with the Spirit's enabling to number our days. What does that mean? We'll find out in the course of today's message, I trust, as we explore the context of the Scriptures as they're delivered to us in this song. The aim of this morning's message is to motivate us, the hearers, to assess ourselves in light of the holiness of God, to do an audit of our life, our our affections, and the purposes, and the things that we pursue, our zeals, the things that we are zealous about, the goals that we have set for ourselves, all of these things and more. We should be motivated by Psalm 90 to assess our lives in light of the holiness of God. This, in fact, is part of what it means to number our days. Would you open up your scriptures again to Psalm 90, verse 1, and would you stand out of reverence for the holy word of God, and would you listen to the word of God proclaimed in your hearing today, as we consider today's psalm under this title, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. 
The Holy Word of God continues in verse 1. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass when it is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. Verse 7, For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days, for all our days, pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. If you notice in your Bible, you might see above Psalm 90 a heading, Book 4, it says, Indeed, the book or the Psalms, the Psalter, is divided into five books in all, and we are at the second to last. And this is the first uh, chapter, if you will, of Book Four. It is introduced to us with a song written by Moses. And as far as I know, this is the only song written by Moses that is recorded in the Psalter. This is a fitting location, after all, for this piece of poetry, which is unrivaled in many ways in its beauty and depth. And it's striking also, parenthetically to note, that these words were written long before most of the other psalms were written. Yet it fits right in, does it not? A psalm written, uh, you know, hundreds of years before David penned his own, and yet it strikes the same notes, a perfect harmony with the rest of the book. Indeed, testifying to its spirit authorship. Ultimately, this is the Holy Spirit's work. Isaac Taylor, a commentator, recognized Moses' philosophical and poetic genius even when he was writing far prior, many years preceding the Greeks. He recognized the philosophical and poetic genius of Moses as surpassing, yes, indeed, the classics. And this he accounted for by virtue of the fact that Moses possessed, quote, a heaven-descended theology. Moses possessed a heaven-descended theology. All other great works of man, great in quotes, 
It's man's attempt in his own reasoning and rationale to account for things. Why does Moses so far surpass these efforts of all of the classic works of literature, ancient and modern, by such great degree? It's because Moses was in possession, as the other authors of Scripture, of a heaven-descended theology, truth directly revealed from God Himself. Consider additionally the experience of Moses, which provides context for Psalm 90. He, Moses, guided his people through the valley of afflicting discipline, the valley of afflicting discipline, as well as ascended the peaks of triumph and witnessed in these moments spectacular salvation. We think of the Exodus journey and Moses leading of the million or so strong out of the clutches of Pharaoh and up into the threshold of the promised land. It begs a question, was there ever a mere man, short of Christ himself, in all of history better equipped in his experience to pen these words? Moses indeed was faithful, as the author of Hebrews says, in all his house, and his vantage point is unique indeed. His vantage point provided in his experience and his theology, which was heaven descended, of course, afforded him a perspective from which to assess the life of the individual in light of the sovereignty of God. Psalm 90 exhorts us to do exactly that. As individuals, to assess your life as an individual, a created being, a subject of the Lord, in light of the sovereignty of God. If we take to heart Moses' words, we will do exactly this today. Now, think of Moses towards the end of his own life. These thoughts, no doubt, ran through his mind. In fact, perhaps he sung Psalm 90 from that last great mountaintop that he climbed before his death as he gazed upon, as he gazed upon the promised land which he would not enter. In those moments, I'm sure it was a profound opportunity for self-reflection. And as Moses thought over his own life, perhaps he found himself numbering his days, even as he exhorted his people to do in Psalm 90. Spurgeon says of this psalm, quote, Many generations of mourners have listened to this psalm when standing around the open grave and have been consoled thereby. Have you ever stood at an open grave? Have you ever been to a graveside service of a funeral? Spurgeon says that Psalm 90 was commonly heard at graveside funerals, graveside services at funerals in his day. Why? Well, it's a perfect psalm for this occasion because it begs those who are still alive, those who are survived by the deceased, to take stock of their life, to think most carefully, and perhaps be awakened by this moment to consider more profoundly the reality of life and the reality of where they stand in light of their own imminent death and in light of the forever nature of eternity. But even so, just the mere fact that Psalm 90 is in the Psalter, we don't have to wait for a death to take stock of our lives or a funeral for an occasion like this. The mere inclusion of Psalm 90 in our Scripture provides us sufficient means, motive, and opportunity to number our own days regardless of our current state of affairs. And so let us hear the call of the Scriptures to take stock of our lives as individuals in light of the sovereignty of God. Let me give you a heading under which I'll attempt to organize four major points to divide in four sections our psalm today. This, the heading is as follows. When numbering his days, the wise person must account for the following. 
Again, when numbering his days, the wise person, the sober person, must account for the following. First of all, the eternal self-existence of God. We'll explain that in a moment. But the character of God must be taken into consideration when numbering our days, assessing, if you will, the meaning of life as it pertains to you. When assessing the meaning of your life as it pertains to you, you must take into account the eternal self-existence, or you could say more broadly, the nature and character of God. Secondly, human vulnerability. How frail and passing temporal we are. Thirdly, the mortal perspective. This is the call, the application call, in light of our own mortality, in light of our own soon-coming death in the grand scope of things, what perspective ought ought that inspire? And finally, communion priority. The priority, you could say, of your relationship with God. When numbering His days, the wise person must account for these. Let us consider point one. Again, the sober person must account for the eternal self-existence of God. In Psalm 90, verse 1, listen to how Moses extols, proclaims, announces the Lord and His glory right from the beginning. Lord, he says, verse 1, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Moses is proclaiming, he is exalting, he is extolling the eternal self-existence of God. What does this phrase mean? Simply this, before anything else was, there was God eternally. Before this universe was a fact of reality, there was God eternally. Before anything was created or conceived in the mind or heart or thoughts or intentions of man, before our consciousness was a reality functioning in this world, there was God. Three persons in one God in eternal, perfect harmony, relationship, and existence. Before anything was, there was the Lord. And not only this, but the Lord Himself is in no way dependent on creation. He is over, He is above, He is sovereign, He is Lord. Creation is His subject, He is not subject to His creation. These are some of the most basic worldview, uh, foundational truths of Christianity, of the Bible itself. Now, Moses says this has been true for all generations. Notice, in exalting the glory of the Lord, he says that it's not just a fact that God has eternally existed, but, this, but because God is who He is, He has been the safe place, the refuge, the dwelling place. That is the point of contact for man's hope from the time man began, from the first man created, first man created Adam indeed. The Lord has been our dwelling place in all generations. This song appropriately begins, as I've mentioned, exalting the holiness of God. It's like the Lord's Prayer, which opens, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Glory to the Lord who is the dwelling place for all men in all generations. Glory to the Lord who was before the mountains and the earth and the world were ever created. Glory to the Lord who who will send man back to dust 
Glory to the Lord who is Lord and sovereign over time, and so on and so forth. This opening of Psalm 90 pairs well with the next psalm. Turn over a page, if you would, and consider Psalm 91, verse 1. The author of Psalm 91 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Again, the Lord, as a safe place, as a refuge, as a point of contact for the hope of men, is exalted. And the benefits of that relationship are then expounded. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. And then Psalm 91 continues to proclaim the priceless blessings of habitation, of dwelling, of relationship with the Lord. Living under the covering of His favor is the only place of reassuring safety that man will ever know. Living under the covering of the Lord's favor. Think of this in the context of Moses himself. Think of this in light of his ministry and the inauguration of temple worship in the wilderness. The temple was the touchstone of unity between the holiness of God and man's dwelling with Him. In the tabernacle, typical sacrifices, that is, sacrifices that symbolize the price paid for man to be in good standing in God's presence, were offered. And so in this place, in this dwelling, as it were, in this tabernacle, under this covering represented by that tent in the wilderness, was a place of safe haven where man could dwell in, in God's presence without fear of His wrath. Because of what the tabernacle represented, man could dwell in God's presence without fear of His punishment, without fear of His wrath. This was a poignant expression of the refuge of man from the beginning. The refuge of man, that is to say, has always been in dwelling with the Lord in His presence, in good standing under the covering of His favor. Now, under the, when numbering our days, we must account for the eternal self-existence of God. We must know who God is. He has always and only been the place of man's uh, safety and a refuge for him and his only hope. But secondly, He has always been even before His creation. So, the eternal, the eternal self-existent God preceded His creation. Verse 2 proclaims as much. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Fundamental, as I've said to the biblical worldview, is the absolute distinction between Creator God and the created realm. There is a distinction between crea- creation, who we are, the world around us, the, everything in the material universe, and God. We should never confuse the two. God is no way subject to, or the technical term is contingent on anything in His, in, in his creation. That is, God does not depend on His creation in any way. One time I was arguing with a fool, that is to say, an atheist, or one who was confessing that he had skepticism about the God of Scripture. And he said, I find it foolish the way the Bible records the, uh, who God is and so forth. And he said, why in the world would God show himself in a burning bush to Moses, for instance? That seems like a fairy tale, a wives' tale, a children's story, but doesn't seem anywhere close to rational or real. And so I told him what I had learned from some astute theologians who asked themselves the question, Why did God reveal Himself in a burning bush? Well, if you note 
in your own study what was actually happening at that time. This bush was aflame with the glorious presence of God manifest in this burning event, yet the bush was not consumed. That very object, which, that very image was an object lesson of something of the nature and character of God. In other words, God is like a fire, this image said, which needs no fuel. And then God announces Himself in what language? I am. Simply stated, I am the self-existent one who was and is and is to come and was forever before the world began. I am the one who is sufficient in and of myself and need nothing else. Now we, in our foolish and short-sighted mindset, under sin and in the frailty of our finitude, in our humanity, cannot fully understand God. But we can sure appreciate when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see a way that He has made Himself known to us or condescended to us. God is a fire that needs no fuel. God is a manifestation of power and glory and authority that is in no way dependent upon His creation. You could go further to say that God is not bound, He is not captive to space, time, history, matter, laws of nature, or indeed even the will of man. Psalm 90 heralds the eternal self-existence of Yahweh, the self-sufficient one, I am that I am. God is not subject to man in any way. In fact, if man in his wickedness and his sinful rebellion thinks that he can be as God and in the spirit of the first lie from Satan disobeys the Lord, you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil held out hope that man could be like God and, the thing, and he did not reap this great knowledge, only judgment. And this message, this proclamation, that from dust man came, and to dust he shall return. And this is what Moses reminds us in verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. This is a proclamation of the sovereignty of God that all sober-minded individuals must account for. The difference between you and God. Most individuals judge themselves as judge God as if they were the authority, that they were higher than Him, that they are the scientist and God is like their subject under the microscope, you know, or in a petri dish in some laboratory somewhere. Oh, isn't this interesting? And do you see the problem with that picture? If you analyze, scrutinize, even study, or relate to God as if you are over Him, above Him, and are sufficient, independent of Him, or by, reason, by uh, virtue of your reason or your rationality, you have the power to judge what He says as valuable or uh, worthless, or Him as real or uh, fake, and so on and so forth. You are reversing the order of things, and you are making yourself out to be God. And you are not realizing that you are nothing more than animated dust. You have been breathed into, uh, like Adam, so to speak, by the power of God with the ability to think and to reason. Why? Because you are created, fashioned, formed in His image. You are contingent on God. God is not contingent on you. The sober man, the wise man, accounts for this when he is numbering his days. Now, uh, I was reading a poet, uh, Yeats, his last name, one of the more famous poets of the last century, and he has a poet called The Second Coming, and it's a cynical take on the nature 
of I interpret, as I interpret it, Western culture, if man continues to exalt himself collectively as God. And in the end, he has this kind of ominous phrase. He sees a beast in the desert, and he says the second coming represents the fruit of our apostasy and will return slouching towards Bethlehem, and the future of man will basically blow up in our face. I was thinking about this, and in light of Psalm 90. And it is not, in fact, so it is not in fact true that there is a monster that is slouching towards Bethlehem that will rebirth and signal, that will be reborn and will signal man's end and somehow threaten to subvert the kingdom of God and the lordship of Christ. It is instead true that man in his sinful condition is slouching, if you will, toward dust. The longer you live, the closer you are to the dirt. Unless something supernatural happens, the fate of all mankind is to return to the earth from which He came. If we are numbering our days, we take into account that if it was not for the power of God to create us and breathe life into human beings, we would be nothing more than the sum of our matter. We would return to the dust of the earth. Is this not a humbling truth? It's meant to humble us. Consider the eternal self-existence of God and consider how temporary you are. Finally, God is not bound by time under the eternal self-existence of God. Verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. We are creatures who must wait for things. We don't know the future, and oftentimes we forget the past. Why? Because we are captive or bound by time. Not so with God. 2 Peter 3.8 references uh, Psalm 90 verse 4. And it talks about the scoffers who say, God has taken so long to return that surely your hope is in vain, essentially. But the mistake that the scoffers make is that God is somehow bound by time. But we are reminded in these scriptures that God's timetable is largely a mystery to us, and His wisdom is in fact, as Paul says in another place, inscrutable. We are to submit and to surrender to His perfect wisdom, though we, wisdom, though we can't understand and though it requires patience to wait for the unfolding of His plan, recognizing that a thousand years uh, in His sight are but a day. A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. We live, you know, it seems, calibrating reality and meaning and our goals by shorter and shorter time spans in our culture today. Of course, politics drives a lot of what goes on in our culture today, and it seems that most politicians are only planning for the next election cycle, which is two or four years out or something like that. And so everything is done in these very short amount of time, uh, segments of time. And you could, you could really uh, say it this way, that the less man takes into account the broad scope of things, the more he returns to a base nature like Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar was out eating grass, all he cared about was his next meal. He didn't care about the future. He didn't have the process when his reasoning was gone to think long term, to plan for the future, to process abstract ideas, complicated thoughts, philosophy, and so forth. To the degree that you are able to do those things, consider it a grace and a blessing. It is evidence of the image and the spirit of God or the, uh, the image of God upon you providentially and the spirit of God in you if you are redeemed. But without this, Without God giving us the ability to process things like this, uh, we are subject to time 
and our life uh, goals and our base desires take over more and more of our life and we, re- we become more and more like brute beasts than we are uh, living in light of a holy God. So consider these things. When numbering our days, the wise person must account for the difference between man and God. God is eternal and self-existent, existent, and He, man, is by His nature dependent on the Lord, His Creator. Second major point. When numbering our days, we must account for human vulnerability. Paul goes, lays this out in a little more detail in verses 5 through 9. You sweep them away as with a flood. A pausing there, you sweep them away. What does the pronoun them refer to? That would be mankind. So the Lord sweeps, you could say, mankind away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. We skip ahead to verse 9 and we see another picture of the vulnerability of of man. Verse 9, All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. So notice, to illustrate human vulnerability, Moses uses several pictures. Flood, dream, grass, and sigh. So has anyone ever built a sandcastle at the beach? I know the Thompsons just returned from Hawaii. Did you guys build any sandcastles while you were there, Maya? Awesome. So when you build a sandcastle, the best place to do it is when the sand is a little wet, correct? So it packs together. So it's always a dance. You want to get close enough to the waves so where the sand is wet, but you don't want the waves to come up too high. So you build this incredible, beautiful castle. You might have seen amazing castles on the internet. Judy, have you ever seen any sand castles that were pretty impressive? Mm-hmm. No kidding. So you've seen some pretty elaborate sand castles. How long do you guys think the average lifespan of a sandcastle is? How long does a sandcastle last? Long time or not very long? What are some kids, what are some things that can destroy a sandcastle? Gideon. Water, that's a good one. Rain, Enoch says, I think. What's that? Yeah, yeah, children. Good job. So a sandcastle is very vulnerable. If you're at the ocean, the tide rises. And as soon as that water level comes up to the height of your castle, sorry, it's gone. Hope you took a picture. Um, if someone has a grudge against you and, you're, and you turn your back, just to be spiteful, they might stamp out your sandcastle with their heel. What if a storm rises out uh, and the thunderclouds gather? Well, that rain is going to wash that sandcastle away. This is a picture much like what Moses uses in our text today. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood. Imagine mankind... In all his arrogance and all his pride, nevertheless, at the end of the day, if he is honest when he numbers his days, he will realize he is like a sandcastle facing a rising tide. He is like a sand sculpture on a beach somewhere as the storm clouds gather. He will be swept away in a moment unless he has hope beyond the tide of God's judgments. Unless man has hope beyond the flood of God's reckoning, he'll be washed away just like that sandcastle at the beach. Just like grass rises and then withers. 
And just like how a tender flower looks so beautiful in the field, yet just lacking water for a few days, it can wither up and all its beauty is forgotten. These are pictures of human vulnerability, illustrations of the fleeting nature of mankind. Now in contrast to this, we have passages like our worship text this morning. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Note that Psalm 90 identifies us as the grass and the flowers, so to speak. You could say, combining the two, man withers, mankind fades, but the word of God will endure forever. Humanism uh, withers, idolatry fades, but the word of God will endure forever. American government, American culture withers and fades, but the word of God will endure forever. Man, in the sum of his being, in the sum of his constructs, in the sum of his cultural achievements, in the sum of what he can build or buy or purchase or uh, what have you, all of this will wither and fade. Yet the word of the Lord stands forever. A sober man, when numbering his days, will take this into account. He will not believe the lie that man can live uh, that I, I can't forget the artist, but there was a sort of a quip by maybe a Hollywood uh, movie producer type. Someone asked him, are you trying to achieve immortality through your art? And he wisely responded, I'd rather be immortal by not dying. And what his answer, what his answer acknowledged is that the notion of achieving immortality by a Freudian slip there, the notion of achieving immortality by a statue that outlasts you is really no immortality at all. It's just a fading memory of something that you produced. But if your body is rotting in the grave, what, eternal, what hope for eternal life is that? I'd rather be immortal by not dying, the wise man says. And then the wiser man says, is there a way to survive the grave? We'll get to that in the course of things. Human vulnerability. So we have these illustrations of the fleeting nature now, uh, of, now, we get closer to the real cause of death. We, in fact, hit the nail on the head. Uh, and there's two causes of death. There's a divine cause and human cause, if you will, in our text today. Note uh, verse 7. Moses says, For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. So, young people, what is the cause of death that Moses says in this verse? What destroys us? What brings us... To our end. I'll read it again and then you answer. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. What is the cause of death in that verse? Maybe some of you older ones. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. Yes, Judah? Oh, yeah, that's real close. Uh, Judah says sin. A little more precisely, what is the cause of death in that verse? Anyone? Disobeying God's word, uh, as? Uh, yeah, that's an answer to a different question, but it's close. Anyone else? All right, adults, what's the cause of death in that verse? Uh, that's correct. God's anger. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Human vulnerability takes into account the anger and the wrath of God. Ultimately, the cause of death the wages of sin is that a just God punishes sin and in His anger He destroys those who stand in rebellion against Him. 
This is the divine cause of death. Spiritually speaking, this is what every autopsy reveals. A spiritual autopsy of a sinner, an unrepentant sinner in the grave, will always come up with this report. They were killed by the anger and wrath of God. The wages of sin, after all, is death. Um, Some people really hate the Word of God, especially these days. It seems that this attitude is more prevalent. Why do they hate the Word of God? Because the Word of God points out their sin, and it points out that God is holy, and it says, unless you conform to Him, then your life will be threatened, God's anger will come in due course, and and there is only hell to await the unrepentant sinner. I've heard a lot of people, even some Christians, uh, get upset with the fact that certain sins in the Old Testament deserve the death penalty. Let's pick one that's real uncontroversial. Just kidding. Uh, sodomy. Uh, so the sin of homosexuality in Old Testament Scripture was a capital offense. For the sin of sexual perversion, man must be killed. Oh, I can't believe that. I can't, it couldn't be the case in the New Testament, could it? That's the old rules, and that's the old school, right? This is the way that many Christians, and certainly all in our culture, unsanctified, seem to react. I'll give you a hint on how to interact in these conversations. This is a little rule I use. The first thing I always say is, did you know, I'll ask a question, did you know that every sin, ultimately speaking, is a capital offense? In the court of God, every sin is a capital offense? That's right. The wages of sin are death. In our judgment, everything from the smallest infraction to the greatest, most heinous act is deserving of the wrath of God. Now, there are variations regarding consequences so far as the civil demands you know, on this side of glory are concerned. But when it comes to the ultimate court of God, such as not the case, every sin is a capital offense. It is a transgression against the holiness of God. So once you realize that, now we're just arguing about the responsibility of government under the law of God, to enact certain punishments as an agent of His justice. That's really the only question that remains. And whether and most people, when they react in objection to these kinds of things, they're not just questioning whether or not this is something that the government should act on. They're questioning whether or not this sin is ultimately worthy of death. And the truth from God's Holy Scripture is every sin is worthy of death. Ultimately, the cause of death is the wrath of God, unless there is an intervention. There's also a human cause of death. It's spoken of in verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Why is God angry? Why is is His wrath um, uh, upon sinners, unrepentant sinners? It is because, what Judah said earlier, of our sin. Our iniquities, our secret sins, God always has before Him. There are many ways that we try to cover up our sins. We minimize our wickedness um, in socially acceptable ways so we can present ourselves in public as a nice person, nice guy, or good gal, or whatever. But underneath this public or this exterior, this presentation of self, which usually is the best possible way we can put ourselves together so that people view us in the best possible light, underneath that are secret sins for all of us. And the sober man, when numbering his days, takes into account that God knows each and every one. So the sober man can only find reassurance if there is a a sacrifice that has paid for each and every one of them. 
because he is, oh, he is keenly aware in the light of the truth of Scripture that a God, a, 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 an eternal, self-existent, holy, omniscient God knows every sin, even the secret ones. And in light of this, the only place that we can be reassured is not the best presentation of self so that we can be judged by our neighbors as a good guy. The only hope for us is that a sufficient price would be offered to pay for all of those sins, secret and overt and otherwise. Human vulnerability. When numbering our days, we must take into account the eternal self-existence of God, human vulnerability. And now we move to our application point, the central thrust of Psalm 90, how then shall we live? Question answered. In light of this, what ought to change? So in verses 10 through 12, Moses says the following, The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And then this key phrase in the title of our sermon, verse 12, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. So given the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, what is the perspective that our mortality, the mortal perspective, if you will, what does the wise man, when numbering his days, take into account? Well, first of all, he takes into account that life is like a vapor. It's like a sigh. It's like grass that withers. It's like a flood that washes away a sandcastle. Life is short. If you're lucky, you'll get 70. If you're real lucky, 80. We know those who are older than this. We know those whose lives have been cut short. Ultimately, only the Lord knows the number of our days. So we must trust ourselves in His hand. When we number our own days, one thing is certain, we cannot ultimately know the, uh, we cannot know the actual number of 24-hour cycles that we will live. So what Moses says when he exhorts us to number our days, it isn't to count the probability of how long we will live. Instead, it's to live in light of the brevity, the shortness, the frailty of our lives. You could get 70, maybe 80 if you're lucky, but even these are fraught with toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Do you guys realize that most individuals, unrepent, you know, just uh, average, worldly, secular individuals in our culture today are living life trying to maximize moments of happiness. And those might be just flashpoints of smiles in between the grueling nature of a fallen world, which span months, sometimes years, uh, followed a relationship. Sometimes drugs are taken to dull the effects of the sin, the consciousness, the guilt the pain, the toil, the terror, the trauma that follows, follows us through this life. What a futile way to live. A sacrificing yourself, choosing a life of sin, trying to leverage yourself at the cost of others and the Lord's glory for the moments of satisfaction that come as a brief flashpoint of fleeting joy in a life of fallenness and a life of uh, of toil and trouble and so on and so forth. If we live this way, we are not numbering our days. We are not sober. We are unwise. The wise man realizes that life is short. You remember those t-shirts back in the 80s when it was popular to have cliches on your t-shirts like, life is short, play hard or something like that? So is that 
a wise man assessing and numbering his days when he thinks, well, life is really short, so I'm going to be really, really good at soccer. Uh, no, not exactly. That's not what Moses has in mind. Uh, a couple of uh, documentaries came out recently that I was kind of fascinated with. One was, I think it's called Free Solo. And it's a dude, uh, a guy, maybe 20s, 30 years old or something like that, who free climbed without any ropes or assistance, El Capitan or whatever, that tall cliff face in Yosemite. It's like 3,200 feet, a sheer granite wall. And like Spider-Man in four hours, he climbed all the way up. Well, these are the kinds of... Th- oh, another guy recently crossed Antarctic. Two guys basically on foot, unassisted, carrying almost 400-pound sleds, and they made it all the way across Antarctica. Well, if you listen to their interviews, if you listen to some of the behind-the-scenes, you basically get this accounting. You know, life is short, so it's worth it to pursue these great, uh, things like this, this kind of pushing yourself and greatness, these sort of bucketless things of either indulgence or achievement. Most people... Uh, who don't have the mortal perspective, if you will, they'll have a foolish assessment of their life and they'll say, since life is short, we should achieve great things in and of ourselves or we should maximize our self-indulgence. This is the mark of an unwise soul. This is what people do when they don't take into account eternity. The fear of the Lord would lead you to do otherwise. Notice what Moses says in verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger? So take into account the brevity of life and the power of God's anger and the wrath and your wrath according to the fear of you. In other words, a sober man in assessing his life, in numbering his days, will take into account the Lord's anger and his wrath and it will lead him to this conclusion. I fear you, Lord. I adapted a definition of the fear of the Lord from a study Bible I was reading That was really helpful. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, one stab at it could be a holiness-seeking love based in reverence, faith, and humility. The fear of the Lord contains these ideas. A holiness-seeking love based in reverence, faith, and humility. It's the sober reality of how big God is. What a horrible sinner you are and therefore listening very closely to His instructions in His holy word. This is the fear of the Lord. Teach us to number our days, Moses says. Teach us to fear you. When we account for the meaning of our life, let us remember your anger and wrath towards sin, not just, I want to, have, I want to maximize my experience before I die. This is how Moses is instructing the people. Finally, he says under this point, in the heart of wisdom, a heart of wisdom will be taught by the Lord how to number our days. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So the sober and wise person accounts for these things that we've mentioned before and the application, the conclusion it leads him to is in Moses' words, to number his days. What does it mean to number your days? Well, based on our The sermon thus far, you may be getting an idea of what it means, but here's a summary sentence that may help. Numbering our days is to take stock of our lives and rearrange our priorities and pursuits in light of ultimate truth or in light of the Word of God. What is numbering our days? Well, perhaps you could say it this way, to take stock of our lives and rearrange our priorities and our pursuits in light 
of the Word of God. And Paul says, if your eyes are open, if you're a sober person, if you have wisdom, if you realize the nature of things, the character of God, and the frailty of man, you will do this. Final point this morning, when numbering our days, the wise and sober person must account for not only the self Exist, the eternal self-existence of God, human vulnerability, the mortal perspective, but finally, the priority of communion. Communion meaning relationship with the Lord, or the phrase we used before, dwelling when safety under the covering of His favor. The covering of God's favor as the dwelling place for man is represented by communion, relationship, by that uh, the foundational uh, connection between a redeemed sinner and a holy God fully healed. Under this, we have verses 13 through 17, the close of the chapter. Moses cries, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. And notice what he says in following, under three categories, steadfast love, the revelation of glory, and the benefits of favor. 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. The satisfaction of steadfast love is a priority when numbering our days. This is one of those things that we must have as a chief end or goal, that we would glorify the Lord and enjoy Him, as the confession says, but this is only possible if we are the objects of His steadfast love. This leads to a satisfying condition where we have true joy. We can rejoice and be glad all our days when we know that God loves us. Secondly, verse 15, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Verse 16, Let, the work, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. So that's a revelation of God's glory, a knowledge and appreciation of what He has done in history and salvation. This is a priority for the sober person assessing his life. And finally, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, verse 17, and establish the work of our hands and so on. The favor of the Lord being upon us. So the satisfaction of steadfast love, the revelation of God's glory, and the benefits of His favor. These are priority. A satisfaction of steadfast love results in the following, joy and gladness. Rejoicing. It is the relief of knowing that your sins are covered. Steadfast love is that said word in Hebrew, which we've referenced often. It's a repeated theme, perhaps the most often repeated in all of the Psalter. It refers to God's sovereign grace in Old Testament terms, His making a way for man to be in good standing with the Lord. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. The psalmist recognizes that this is the only sane way to have true joy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. A man can be happy, he can be ecstatic, he can be enjoying himself and be drooling and fumbling around with sharp objects in an infirmary somewhere. Is this true joy? No. This is the joy that a fool, someone who is incontinent, who doesn't have a sober view of himself, but it's the, joy, or it's the joy of something that is passing and temporal and bound to the circumstances right in front of us. 
Moses is declaring that there is a joy that transcends that. It may not always feel like a happy little high that a drug might give, but it is the reassuring knowledge that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and will carry you beyond this veil of tears into eternal bliss and glory one day. And that, brothers and sisters, is where primarily, mostly, virtually all our hope is invested. We might resent the fact that God sends us through so much trial and painful endurance, situations that require painful endurance, this side of glory. But remember, His love endures forever. This is just but a vapor, a sigh, a flood, grass that withers 70 or 80 years. Most all of our joy is invested in the promises in the future. We can relate to one like Abraham, who has promised a nation, a place, and a city and lived in tents his whole life. But he was looking forward to a city whose designer and builder was God. His hope was invested in the promises that he would obtain beyond this life. We can relate to Moses, who never stepped into the promised land until the day on the Mount of Transfiguration, where the power of God was evidenced to resurrect from the dead and to bring into his presence former saints who had died. And now Elijah is standing there next to Moses, prefiguring the second resurrection in the promised land. It would have been wrong for Moses to resent the Lord's discipline as he died on that mountain overlooking the future of his promises. Because of the Lord's steadfast love, Moses knew that the promises extended far beyond his experience in this life Moses was a sinner, frail like you and I. His years were passing. He had that 70, 80 or a little more, and then he knew he would have to trust himself into the hands of an almighty God. But to do so wisely, to do so with sobriety, meant trusting the steadfast love of the Lord was his hope and stay beyond the grave. And this is the kind of gladness that survives when all other cheap substitutes fail. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Remember, Moses is likely approaching the threshold of the promised land, knowing that the first generation and he himself will not cross. So he is praying that the mighty works of God would be proclaimed to the generation who would inherit the promised land Indeed, their children. The children of the Exodus would cross with Joshua the Jordan and would claim the promised land. This was the revelation of his glory, or in the revelation of his glory was necessary for this generation to realize the to realize the perspective that would give them a sober assessment, allow them to number their own days and live in faith, even though they had their own share of challenges and difficulties and trials in front of them. So remember the steadfast love of the Lord, His grace that His sacrifice provides. Remember the revelation of His glory, His mighty works proclaimed through history, and finally, the benefits of His favor. Let your work be shown, or verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The favor of the Lord, the Lord's love, His concern, His care, His relationship with you is restored and established when a sufficient sacrifice in substitution of your place is presented so that your sins are atoned for. And by that atoning work, by that ransom price that we talked about last week, 
you are purchased. Your freedom from sin is purchased. And you are now in favor, in the Lord's favor, in indeed His family. And the Spirit of God's Son now inhabits your soul, moving you to cry out, Abba, Father, this is favor. The favor that Moses prophesied is revealed in the New Testament in passages like Galatians 4. More than this, the concept of the Lord as our dwelling place in all generations is fulfilled in the New Testament as well. That is to say, the fullest expression of Moses' understanding of God as the dwelling place of His people and His favor resting upon them would be realized in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Remember in John, as he opens his gospel, he says as much. John chapter 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, the eternal self-existent One, as the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and dwelt with us. Because Christ came, because Christ died, because Christ took on the burden of our sin and supplied the, the payment and satisfied it in His flesh, because of this, the dwelling place of God is now with men. Christ tabernacled with us, He dwelt with us, and we have the realization of Moses' words as a reality in Him because Christ has come. Colossians goes on to declare that our life is hidden with Christ in God. His people, or again, the fullest expression of Moses' understanding of God as the dwelling place of his people and the expression of his favor resting upon them would be realized with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is of him that John wrote, He came and dwelt among us. And Paul writes to believers like us, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. In closing this morning, have you numbered your days? Have you seen yourself and your future in light of these inarguable, immovable truths? The fact that God is holy, that you are a sinner, that you are a mere mortal, that you'll get 80 years if you're lucky on this earth, that the highest priority, the only place of safety, the only source of true joy is the communion, the restored relationship between you and the Lord. I pray if you haven't that you would, that you would number your days. That is, that you would take stock of your life in light of these truths, rearrange your priorities and pursuits in light of the Word of God. Because in Christ, and only in Christ, can we have ultimate security, hope, assurance, satisfaction of our sins and join with Moses in the dwelling place of God with man. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we are thankful for the promises of your holy word. We thank you that you have supplied sufficient payment for our sins in the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that by the Spirit, using the word, we can soberly, wisely assess our lives, number our days, and learn to live in light of eternity. I pray that you would use the scriptures to do exactly that. They would be a sufficient motive as a Spirit employs to move us as hearers to assess ourselves in light of the holiness of God. And I pray for those who are believers that it would stir within us a thankfulness for the blood of Christ and an obedience that overflows from our worship. And for those that may not know you yet in this place or in the hearing of this message, 
that they would repent of their sins, repent of their idols, and that they would place faith in Jesus Christ alone, that we might all commune together one day under the covering of your favor in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord.